Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm so excited to be turning to the Old Testament this morning. We will be in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. So as you make your way there and your does everyone have a Bible? Does anyone not have one? Well, if you don't, there's some in your pews. You can grab them right in front of you. Use those ones there, or if not, then we'll, we'll be sure to get one around to you. But turn in your Old Testament to the book of Daniel, and as you do so, I just want to pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now in need. We come to you now knowing that we need to receive from you life-giving food. We need your word. And when you put before us choices of choosing life or death, the choice is whether or not we will listen to your word. Your word is life. Your truth. So I pray that you would, God, allow us to be receptive to what is here. Speak to us in our lives that we may walk in faithfulness to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Daniel, chapter 1. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abadnego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Well, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. 
and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You can have a seat. In a recent book by pastor and author Erwin Lutzer, his leading chapter begins with these words. Welcome to Babylon! We have arrived, and we are here to stay. Whatever you took for granted in generations past, okay, here in America, is rapidly disappearing. The America you knew is not the America of today. He goes on to say, you know, in the past, we as American Christians have always had home field advantage. We knew that in the crowd there were those from the other team who were opposed to us, but the larger stadium crowd was either on our side or indifferent to our witness as Christians. All that has changed. Now we play all our games on enemy turf. A minority is on our side, but the wider culture sits in the stands shouting hateful epithets at us, rejoicing at our losses. Welcome to Babylon. Did you know that that's where you're at? You know, Babylon in the Bible is not simply a place on the map or a nation of people, though it was those things. It is an idea, and the idea is a system of direct opposition to God. Did you notice in chapter 1, verse 2, this reference to the land of Shinar? Did you see that? And he brought them, Nebuchadnezzar, to the land of Shinar. That's a theologically loaded word. Now, he could have said he brought them to Babylon, but instead it says the land of Shinar. Because it's a word that connects the reader to the root of this place. If you were to go back into Genesis 10 and 11, you would see that this was where the city of Babel was first built by a man named Nimrod in the locality of Shinar. And not long after, this became the place where the Babylonites built their infamous tower, right? Exalting a name for themselves. So in contrast to the righteous Noah, or Abram, who built altars to God, to the Lord, you have wicked Cain and Nimrod who built cities and towers, a showcase, really, of strength and pride. This was the land that Daniel was now brought to. 
an ancient place, long acquainted with the enemy. Yeah, indeed, Babylon has been linked by the prophets to the arrogance of Satan himself. Now, we may not be geographically exiled like Daniel and his friends were, but we are exiles morally, spiritually. Peter says this of all Christians, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Hey, you're in exile! An exile, by the way, simply put, is a person displaced. And with that displacement comes a sense of loss and deprivation and a longing to return or, in our case, arrive at our real home. As a believer in Jesus Christ and therefore belonging to Him, you are now a high citizen of heaven. Okay? And thus you are a stranger here on the earth. You're not supposed to feel at home down here. You will stand out in a world that is bowing down to idols of all kinds. But are we? Are you standing out? Or let me ask it this way. Are you standing out for the right reasons? You see, there's something more concerning, really, far more concerning to me than the stance of the wider culture. Okay? Should you expect anything less from a people who are blinded? Really? A blinded world? No, you should expect it, and you should stop being shocked by it and moving yourself into isolation. What's concerning me is this. It's the self-righteous, carnal-minded, deer-in-the-headlights church that is failing from within to live like the Savior that we say we worship. That's more concerning to me. It's a scary thought that the church, which should be a vibrant witness, can actually add to the darkness of the world. Here's what one researcher said. He said, scandalous behavior is rapidly destroying American Christianity. By their daily activity, most Christians regularly commit treason. With their mouths, they claim that Jesus is Lord, but with their actions, they demonstrate allegiance to money, sex, and self-fulfillment. And so droves of people have left the church, young people, and in so doing, they've also said, I've had it with God too, with your God. Really, they, I don't know anymore. Can you blame them? When the walk has not been real. When honesty and humility have been utterly devoid in the church. Well, it's time to get back to authentic Christianity. And that leads me to a very important question. If you and I are in Babylon, the world, the world system, and therefore the pressure is on, but I don't belong to it, okay, I don't belong to it, then this, how do I go, okay, let me pull it up here. We'll pull it up. Here's my question. How do I go about impacting the surrounding culture without being destroyed by it? Good question. How do I make an impact in the world without being spiritually a wreck 
after it. Let me just pause on that one word I put in there, the word impact, okay? Did you know Jesus in John 17, that he prayed this? He said, Father, I'm praying for those who have believed in you that they would be kept from the evil one, right? But here's what he did not pray. He did not ask God to remove us from the world. Instead, his prayer moves towards this. He said, God, as you have sent me, so I have sent them. You know, we like that phrase, in but not of the world. Have you heard that before? Let me uh, pull this up for you, okay? You've heard that, right? We're in, but we're not of the world, okay? Actually, when you really think about that, it's not appropriately focused. It's not untrue. It's just not appropriately focused. It fails to account for why we're in the world in the first place. And then we come to think of ourselves as being, you know, it's rather an unfortunate thing that we're in the world, right? And we just have to deal with it. Well, we're in the world, but we're not of it. And typically, the way we deal with it is by disengaging. Well, I'm not with you. I'm not with that. Let's refine that. No, you're not of this world, right? You don't belong to it. Or as Paul said, the world is crucified to you. It's dead to you. And you're crucified to it. It's got no claim on me. I got no claim on the world. That's true. Jesus said it twice in his prayer. You're not of this world. But let's not end there. Because Jesus didn't end there. Right? But he said this, I have sent them into this world. God sent Jesus, and Jesus has sent me. So to be sent, what does that speak of? It speaks of mission, right? You've been sent. I'm sent. I'm in exile with a mission, right? You're here to shine. And that is as simple and as powerful as a loving heart that does something good, right? Paul said, do good towards those on the outside. So really, it's I would say, instead of we saying, oh, I'm in the world, but not of the world, how about we say this, okay? Not of, I'm not of the world, but I'm sent into it. That's where you are. You're not just in the world. You're not just here, and that's an unfortunate thing. You're sent into it. That's impacting culture. But how do you do that? without being spiritually destroyed by it. There's a balance here, right? You're not of it, but you're in it. You're sent into it. And that balance, okay, the hard questions are going to come to you. They're going to confront you everywhere. Where should your kids be educated? Well, I don't want them of the world, but I got to, well, we want to make an impact. Okay, what devices and access will I allow them to have? What should I watch? What should I listen to? What should I read? What am I willing to participate in when it comes to work? Or outside of work. Okay, where do I draw the line? Daniel and his friends had to wrestle with the same kinds of questions. For they now face the life of exile in idolatrous Babylon. Did you notice the setting of this book, right? Verses 1 to 7. Actually, just pick up here with verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people... Who? The royal family, the nobility. Youths without blemish, notice this, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Okay. What's going on here? Nebuchadnezzar the Great 
as he has been called in history, understood that defeating his enemies was actually a long-term strategy. So it wasn't enough to simply overpower them with military strength, which he already did. Now, that wouldn't do for the long term, you see. He was very cunning in this way. So in order to quell any future rebellion, okay, years later, when an uprising could easily start, what he would do, because that would demand far more of his army than he would want to give, so the king intentionally sapped the defeated nation okay, of its brightest and its best future leaders. And instead, this is very clever, right? I'm going to take them, I'm going to use them to strengthen my own rule. I'm going to make my kingdom better by using the best of other nations. So Daniel and his friends were among these youth, probably teenagers, okay, 15 years old. But of course, to employ them in the service of Babylon meant that they first had to become thoroughly Babylonian. Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was fourfold. Okay. What I want you to note is that our enemy uses the same strategies today. Okay. First, he ordered them to be brought to Babylon, right? Verse 3. What we see there is isolation. Okay. He separated them from everything they knew. Their homes, their families, their land, and their faith. Okay? Like a coal that was taken out of the furnace of godliness, the king hoped that any loyalty towards their God and towards their country would quickly burn out. For various reasons, usually of our own making, we may think that we are better off removed from the people of God. Hurt, whatever, whatever reason. Listen. That is when you are most vulnerable. When you've isolated yourself from God's people. Well, once thoroughly separated, the king then ordered them to be taught, right? And they were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Listen, this wasn't just a matter of learning. There's nothing wrong with learning things. There was a far more subtle purpose to this measure. It was to make them think like we do, right? So you could say it this way, that it was a program of indoctrination, okay? The ungodly don't look at life the way that the godly man or godly woman does. It's completely different. I want you to, I just want to sidestep here for a moment. I say, I want you to be wary, okay? Because in our day and age, I want you to be wary of the way your phone is changing you. Did you know your phone is changing you? There was a book about that recently. It said 12 ways your phone is changing you. Very subtly, it has an effect on the way you think. Listen to this. Technology, he says, makes us think we can indulge in anonymous vices, even conceptually, without any future consequences. Anonymity is where sin flourishes. And anonymity is the most pervasive lie of the digital age. The clicks of our fingertips reveal the dark motives of our hearts. And every sin, every double tap and every click will be accounted for. He also says, lacking self-control over the volume of our data ingestion 
introduces burdens that our physical bodies cannot carry. By grace, okay, we are free to close our news sources, close our life-hacking apps. Did you think of your apps that way, that they are hacking your life? And power down our phones in order to simply feast in the presence of friends and enjoy our spouses and families in the mystery, majesty, and I love this, thickness of human existence. It's changing the way you think. Why do you think? Let me see this. Who do you think is prompting those kind of news feeds that are constantly notifying you on your phone? Yeah, technology can be used for good. I'm not denying that. But don't forget that the prince of the power of the air has his targets on you. And he would like nothing more than to undermine your faith. And your phone, sorry to say it, is an easy way. Hey, if it doesn't have a hold on you, if you're saying, ah, no, no, my phone doesn't have a hold on me, then I dare you, okay, shut it off. Do it. Do it today. Do it for a whole day. Indoctrination has far more to do with how we think than what it is we are learning. Well, next you'll see that the king assigned them a daily portion from his table, right? I'm going to give you my food. I'm going to give you my wine to drink. And this was a third strategy, okay, of this, of compromise. It wasn't so much the threats that they were going to face, right? The imposed religious laws, you're going to bow down when I tell you to bow down. But really it was this. It was the offer that they were being made. Okay? All the Babylonians had to do was appeal to their inner cravings. They were offered education. They were offered a position of power. And look at this. Comfort. Right? I get to eat at the king's table. Wow. The idea was they could now indulge in pleasures that they formerly had not known. And this life of enjoyment was meant to wean them away from the hard life that God called them to. Today we are a culture of excesses, right? And we get surprised that the life of a disciple is actually one of loss sometimes and of suffering. It's a hard life. And what was true then is still true now. You know that? People have their price. What I mean is people can be bought. And the Babylonians tapped it. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. So of all the Israelites taken away, and there were many besides Daniel, most were easily assimilated as the rest of the conquered peoples were. And if that wasn't enough to add to the reprogramming of these Israelite youths, okay, to cap it off, so to speak, they were all renamed after Babylonian gods, right? Daniel, God is my judge, was now called Belshazzar, which means Bel, uh, Babylonian god, protect him. Hananiah was called Shadrach, the command of Aku. They were opposing names. They're now named after the Babylonian gods. And the re-identification was really a purposeful strategy of confusion. Every day, they were now going to be called by these names. And the temptation would be to forget who they really were. Who they really belonged to. Now, you're not a citizen of Jerusalem. You're Babylonian now. You might as well start living like it. Do you forget who you are? It's easy to get lost and caught up in all the thinking 
of this world. That's why you come back to the gospel on a daily basis. Folks, people today are utterly confused about who they are. Listen, I had a small commotion in here Wednesday night when I told a group of 8 to 12-year-olds that God designed people as men and women. I had someone say, well, some are half-half. No, I said, no, God made us male and female. So, folks, 8 to 12 years old, thinking a person can be half man, half woman. Really, I had to move on to the next subject. Leaders, I'm going to ask you something. Get ready for next week because we're going to hit it head on. Okay? Next week is God created people, so we're going to talk about this. But I'm, what I mean is you need to be ready to defend what the Bible says. That's what I mean by not being like a deer caught in the headlights. Well, I don't know how to respond to this. Really? You don't know the Word of God? Our real identity is found in who? In Jesus Christ. It means you were made for Him. Okay? You were made to worship Him. You were made to give Him everything that He's given to you. You were made for a relationship of knowing and being known by Him. Imagine that. He knows you, all of you, and still loves you. So no matter what you're hearing out here, what you need to do is let His words be fresh on your mind like the dew every morning. Right? So think of this, right? Here's what's going on for these youths. The pressure to conform on Daniel and his friends in this culture was intensely thorough. Okay? And far more controlling than anything you and I have faced. How were they able to resist it? How could they stand? Right? Well, did you know the design of this whole book? If you're, let's say, well, what's Daniel about? It's to urge us to do this, to remain faithful. Remain faithful. Be resolute. And the first chapter demonstrates how Daniel remained faithful to God and yet still made an impact for God. So what is the stance? That's what I want to ask. What's the stance? The stance of impact without compromise. Okay? Number one, see God on the throne. See God on the throne. Look back for a minute at verses 1 and 2. Did you see this? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Yeah, he overpowered them. It was terrible. But notice verse 2. Daniel says, And the Lord gave, right? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What Daniel remembered was that it was God who was really in charge. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was successful against Jerusalem and against its inhabitants, but it was only on account of God's faithfulness to his own decree. Because long ago it was said, go back to Deuteronomy, Leviticus, that should the nation turn from God, they would be sieged such as they were and be scattered to the nations. And Jeremiah warned that this would be the fate for their sins. Daniel correctly links Jerusalem's fall to God's promise. 
even though Daniel and his friends shared the consequences of the nation's fate, right? They were suffering for it. It was yet a comfort and confirmation that God, not Nebuchadnezzar, was the one who was sovereignly in charge, even over the workings of evil people. And because they knew that God was sovereign, they had reason to trust Him in the place where they were going. See, nothing was outside of God's oversight. Do you see that God is on His throne, whether you're at church or at home, whether you're at work or at school? He's there. Do you see that obedience to Him matters all the time and in every context? This awareness remained with Daniel. He kept it in view. He looked at God on the throne. God and His ways still mattered no matter where He was or who was over Him. And that is how you come to the kind of verse you get to in verse 8, right? Notice verse 8. But Daniel, yeah, they did all this stuff. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Secondly, I see this then. Here's part of this stance. You resolve that you won't, you will not offend God. You know what astonishes me about this? It's how small a thing it was. Just eat the food, right? Hey, hey, this is high living. All that horror in Jerusalem is finally paying off. That's one way to think of it, right? But for Daniel, the king's food was not a reward, but a seduction to enter the lifestyle of the Babylonians. And this he would not do. Hey, this wasn't a young person who wanted to be different just to stand out in the crowd, right? There's plenty of that going on today. I just want to be different to be different. Daniel's purpose was not to defile himself, right? In other words, I'm not going to eat that because I revere God. And there will be a time when every child of God must make a decision of whether he or, not, or she will defile themselves. Will you get involved sexually outside of the marriage? Will you refuse to watch a program that would defile your mind? Will you refuse that promotion because the position would compromise your morals. Listen, this wasn't a show so he could impress someone. It begins here. It begins in a private matter between oneself and God. I also saw this, that it was a singular decision, right? Just one small decision that paved the way for greater faithfulness later. Right? Listen, you wouldn't have a praying against the king's edict, Daniel, of chapter 6, if you didn't first have the refusal to eat the king's food of Daniel chapter 1. You know, we get that mixed up. Okay? We think we can afford small compromises here. Oh, I'll just cheat a little bit there. Oh, it's okay if I falsify some information here. Until I get into the position I want, and then I'll act on my beliefs. Let me tell you something. Trouble is, by doing that, you have already lost the moral strength to publicly and joyfully make a stand for your faith. It'll be harder then than it would be at first. Faithfulness is not just for big matters. 
It's called for on every day in our dealings. There is, however, a third thing to be seen in Daniel's resolve. Okay, It's not just that he stands firm, which he does, but how he stands firm. Did you see this? Look at this, okay? Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Note that. Favor and compassion, right? And 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Well, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Well, verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over them, right? So this is a different guy. He he comes to him and says, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of our youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with us according to what you see. Okay? What I see is how he stood firm in this way, right? Be modest in your resolve. Be modest in your resolve. The fact that Daniel had made up his mind, right, he did not have to tell that to his superiors. He said, you know what? He didn't have to come and say, you know what? I'm not going to eat this junk food. So don't even think about giving it to me. I ain't taking this crap, right? He didn't come to them and say that. He wasn't obnoxious. He wasn't uncouth, right? He didn't act without tact, right? But when Daniel spoke his mind to his overseers, to his superiors, he was polite and he was unassuming. And by the way, he didn't have to act with hysterics and drama either. In fact, you could say this, that there's something Christ-like in his manner. For Jesus also demonstrated the same demeanor. Did you see this? Turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. I was in the wrong book myself. Okay. When he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Could have, right? But he didn't. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus and Daniel had this in common. They did not judge those with whom they dealt, but they understood this, that God is the judge of every man. Hey, what does it say? What's it communicating when we act in an unbecoming way towards the unbelieving world? Does it not show that our real concern, what our focus is, is that, hey, this is my conviction, and you're going to honor me, right? And really, it has nothing at all to do with the glory of God. What I'm saying is his manner shows us that it's not about Daniel, right? He did nothing in this exchange that drew attention to himself. What mattered to him, right, what drove his resolve was the glory of God. God's holy, and I want to respect that. 
And that was clarified to those Babylonian men by his modest behavior. He didn't have to demand. He didn't have to act in an obnoxious way. Because Daniel saw God's glory as his chief end, he knew that whatever the outcome, he would not be disappointed. Right? Uh, as I learned this morning, and Mark's sharing with us, right? when the Holy Spirit does the work, the Holy Spirit takes care of the details. And he did that for Daniel. Right? Look at this. Verse 15. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Well, how do you explain that? I can't, except that God did it. He took care of it. God honored Daniel's faithfulness. So, welcome to Babylon. I don't know what pressures will be put to you this week or month or year, but there is a way to handle them that maintains your faithfulness to God, right? Being you're not of this world, while still impacting it as we indeed are sent by Him. And Daniel did that. He resolved, but he was modest in his resolve. You get it? So, get a view of God. He's on His throne. See Him and live with resolve. Resolve today. You do this beforehand, not at the moment. Resolve today that even in the smallest of matters, you will be faithful to Him. You're not going to succumb to being a compromised Christian. But in your resolve, be modest. Act with taste, right? With tact. Because it's really about Him. Not about you. It's for His glory. Not us and our convictions. And God will always honor what is done for His name. Let's pray. Lord, we would be amiss and deceived to think that we can walk into the world in which our lives revolve unprepared, unready. But Lord, if Daniel could stand in the kind of oppressive culture in which he was brought, can we not, in the relative freedom that we have within our own country? Oh, we can. But God, we come to you now. And I pray that you would lay it upon each one of us that in our own matters, we would say we will not compromise. We will not be defiled before you. But we'll maintain our witness to you because it's about you, God. We want you to be glorified in our lives. And so we're going to act with respect and kindness towards those on the outside so that they also would see how great and how powerful you are. We pray towards these ends in Jesus' name. Amen.